From the Conference Center at Temple Square in Salt Lake City, we bring you the General Priesthood Session of the 189th Annual General Conference of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Music for this session is provided by an Aaronic Priesthood Choir of young men from stakes in the Layton, Utah area. President Dallin H. Oaks, First Counselor in the First Presidency of the Church, will conduct this session. Brethren, we welcome you to the priesthood session of the 189th Annual General Conference of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. President Russell M. Nelson, who presides over the conference, has asked me to conduct this session. These services are being relayed by satellite transmission to priesthood holders in many nations and locations throughout the world. The music for this session will be provided by an Aaronic Priesthood Choir of young men from stakes in the Layton, Utah area under the direction of Stephen Shank with Brian Mathias at the organ. The choir will open this meeting by singing, Guide Us, O Thou Great Jehovah. The invocation will then be offered by Elder John C. Pingree, Jr. of the Seventy, after which the choir will sing, Count Your Blessings.
Our beloved Father in heaven, we are so grateful to be together tonight as priesthood holders. We acknowledge before thee our many weaknesses and shortcomings and even sins, but we are so grateful that thou hast sent thy Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, we are grateful for his willingness and capacity to be our Savior and our Redeemer and our great healer. We are grateful for thy Spirit and pray that it will be with us today and will help change our hearts so that we might be stronger and better disciples. We are so grateful for a modern-day prophet today, President Nelson. We are grateful for the revelation that thou hast shared with us through him. May we have the hearts and minds to follow and to become whom thou wouldst have us to become. And we say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
Thank you, young men of the Aaronic Priesthood Choir. That was outstanding. We'll now be pleased to hear from Elder Gary E. Stevenson of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. He will be followed by Elder Carl B. Cook of the Presidency of the Seventy, and Elder Kim B. Clark of the Seventy will then address us. Elder Stevenson. Last December, the First Presidency issued a statement announcing that 11-year-olds would begin attending Aaronic Priesthood Quorums at the beginning of, the, of January in the year they turned 12. As a result, during the first part of this year, there were quite a few startled 11-year-old boys who had assumed they would be staying in primary until their next birthday, but were now passing the sacrament on Sundays as the Church's newest ordained deacons. I wonder who is surprised most by the change, the deacons or their parents. Many of these almost 80,000 new deacons are with us tonight in this great conference center <clears throat> or are participating through technology. Welcome to the great brotherhood of the priesthood. This change makes this meeting an historic one. It is likely the largest group of Aaronic priesthood holders ever to attend a general priesthood session of general conference. In light of this special occasion, I direct my remarks especially to the young men of the Aaronic Priesthood. As students, many of you are also developing your talents, interests, and hobbies through extracurricular activities at school or in private lessons, teams, and groups outside of school, including sports. Having enjoyed sports throughout my life, I have always admired those who develop their athletic abilities to the point where they perform at high levels. For someone to be really good at anything, in addition to natural talent, it takes great discipline, sacrifice, and countless hours of training and practice. Such athletes often hear the sometimes harsh criticisms of coaches and willingly put aside what they want now for something greater in the future. We know Church members and priesthood holders who have experienced success at the highest levels of professional athletics. There are many good examples, but I can only list a few here for the sake of time. You might recognize some of these athletes. In baseball, Jeremy Guthrie and Bryce Harper. In basketball, Jabari Parker and Jimmer Fredette. In soccer, Ricardo Rojas. And rugby league, William Hopoate. And in football, Taysom Hill and Daniel Sorensen. Each has made significant contributions to his sport. While they are extremely successful in their sports, these athletes would be the first to admit that they are not perfect athletes or perfect human beings. They work hard to be the best in their sport and to live the gospel. They get up if they stumble, and they strive to endure to the end. In team sports, plays are developed for certain game situations and compiled into a playbook. Athletes learn their specific assignment for each play. Successful players study the playbook so thoroughly that when a play is called, they know exactly, almost instinctively, where to go and what to do. 
In a similar way, we holders of the priesthood also have a team, a quorum, and a playbook, the holy scriptures and words of modern prophets. Do you strengthen your teammates? How well have you studied your playbook? Do you fully understand your assignment? To take the analogy even further, great coaches know the strengths and weaknesses of their team as well as those of the opposition. They create a game plan that will give them the best chance for victory. What about you? You know what temptations you are most vulnerable to, and you can predict how the adversary will try to derail and dishearten you. Have you created a personal game plan and playbook so that you will know how to respond when faced with opposition? As you confront various moral temptations, whether in the company of others or when you are alone staring at a screen, you know the game plan. If a friend suggests you drink alcohol or try drugs, you know the play. You've practiced and you know how to react in advance. With a game plan, a playbook, and a firm commitment to execute your role, you will find that temptation has less control over you. You will have already made the decision how you will react and what you will do. You won't need to decide every time you're confronted with temptation. One of the brethren recently shared a story that illustrates this uh, principle. As a priest in high school, he was hanging out with his friends. After they got something to eat, they were driving around when someone suggested they should go to a certain movie. Problem was, he knew it was a movie he shouldn't see. Although he immediately felt pressure and anxiety about the situation, he had planned for this. This was a page straight out of his priesthood playbook. Taking a deep breath and summoning his courage, he announced, I'm not interested in that movie. Just drop me off at my house, which they did. A simple play leading to a victory. Years later, one of the friends with him that night described how this example proved to be great strength for him to courageously face similar circumstances in his own life. I asked a few of the brethren to recommend plays you might include in your playbook. Here are some of their inspired suggestions. Pray every day for greater light and a testimony of Jesus Christ. Listen carefully to the teachings of your parents, bishop, and your young men and quorum leaders. Avoid pornography and immoral social media content. Remember the promises you have made to God and work to keep them. Study scripture stories of great prophets and emulate their good qualities. Bless Heavenly Father's children through service. Seek good friends to help you become the person you want to be. Become an expert in the Family Search app and research your own family history. Plan places of retreat where you can escape evil influences. Love and strengthen other members of your priesthood quorum. I also communicated with the athletes whose pictures we viewed earlier. I found it interesting that they do not identify themselves only by what they do as professional athletes, rather by who they are as sons of a loving Heavenly Father and holders of the priesthood of God. Now let's listen to their thoughts. Jimmer Ferdet, here as a deacon learning to tie his tie, says, 
I've learned to lean heavily on my knowledge and faith of the truthfulness of the gospel. This has guided me to be a worthy priesthood holder and, above all, a positive example. Bryce Harper here, as a husband, writes, I thought fame, fortune, and an MVP award would make me happy. Something was missing, so I prepared and entered the temple. I am now on a path to return to my Heavenly Father and have an eternal family, which is the greatest joy in the world. Daniel Sorensen, here as a missionary, says, A good playbook is a plan that uses the talents and strengths of each team member. As I study and practice the teachings of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I can know how to use my strengths to serve in the priesthood. Jeremy Guthrie, here currently serving as mission president, shared, As a 12-year-old deacon, I felt the Spirit testify to me that this life is a time to prepare to meet God. The game plan is faith in God unto action and repentance through the Savior. The playbook is found in the Holy Scriptures and through living prophets. Jabari Parker, here at his ordination to the office of elder, says, I couldn't imagine the person I would have turned out to be if I hadn't made the decision to be baptized. I'm so grateful I have God in my life to guide me every day. Ricardo Rojas, here currently serving as branch president, said, Through God's priesthood we can help in His work. We are called to be strong and of good courage in defending the truth. This has helped him succeed both on the pitch and as a priesthood holder. Taysom Hill, here as a missionary, feels the gospel of Jesus Christ has served as a playbook for him in his life. He shared, Believing in God's plan and doing my best to fulfill my role in it has given me an overwhelming sense of peace and happiness in life, knowing God is pleased with my efforts. And William Hopawate, here at his son's baby blessing with four generations, says the gospel helps him identify the opposition strategies and provide the spiritual efficacy to withstand fiery darts and better serve others. What about you? Do you recognize your higher and holier identity as a son of God, a bearer of his holy priesthood? With this eternal identity in mind, create your game plan and priesthood playbook that will guide you during times of temptation and adversity. Consider both offensive and defensive strategies. Offensive strategies help strengthen testimonies and increase resolve to stay on the straight and narrow path. Examples include regular prayer, scripture study, church and temple attendance, paying tithing, and following the counsel found in the For Strength of Youth pamphlet. Defensive strategies include planning ahead how you will face temptation. When tempted to compromise your personal standards, you know beforehand what you will do. You need a playbook for that. Don't feel like praying today? Time to execute the play you already game-planned. Do you feel your testimony waning? You have a play for that. You know what to do. You're bearers of the holy priesthood of God. Your commitment to hold firmly the iron rod will transform you into the eternal being that you were created to become. God knows you and loves you. He will bless you and guide your steps. You might be thinking that you are no one special, that you're not all-star material, but that is not true. Don't you know that God has proclaimed 
the weak things of the world shall come forth and break down the mighty and strong ones. So, do you feel weak and significant? Congratulations, you just made the, made the lineup. Do you feel unimportant, inferior? You may be just who God needs. What greater example is there than David stepping onto the battlefield against a frightening opponent, Goliath? Relying on the Lord with a plan, David saved not only himself but the army of Israel. Know that the Lord will be with you as you summon your courage to be on his side. If God be for us, who can be against us? He can open doors and help us find strengths and abilities we never knew we had. Listen to your trusted coaches, such as your parents, bishop, and young men leaders. Learn the playbook, read the scriptures, study the words of modern-day prophets. Create your own game plan of how you approve yourself as a disciple of Christ. Know in advance the plays you will employ to strengthen your spirit and avoid the snares of the adversary. Do this, and God will surely utilize you. Now, there may be some who detach themselves from the gospel and wander away. Others may sit in the stands to watch the game from afar or choose to stay on the bench even though the coaches tried to send them in. I invite you to rescue, support, and love them as a fellow team member. Others will want to get in the game. What matters most is not how talented they are, but their willingness to put themselves on the field. They do not have to wait for their number to be called because they know the scriptures which say, If ye have desires to serve God, ye are called to the work. You can put yourself in the lineup. You do this as you study and execute your priesthood playbook. Along the way, you will stumble and fall perhaps many times. You're not perfect. Falling is part of the qualifying process that refines your character to serve in a more compassionate way. The Savior and His infinite atonement provide the way to overcome our mistakes through sincere repentance. Great athletes spend hundreds of hours perfecting one small aspect of their game. As a priesthood holder, you need the same mindset. If you fail, repent, learn from it, and practice so you, so you will do better next time. Ultimately, it's up to you. Will you learn your playbook? I urge you, trust in the Lord. Put on the whole armor of God and get in the game. There aren't many who play professional sports at the highest levels, but when it comes to discipleship, there are many who choose to follow Christ. In fact, that is your mission in this life, to learn the ways of the Lord, enter the path of discipleship, and strive to live according to God's plan. God will uphold you and bless you as you turn to Him. You can do this because you are an all-star in His eyes. I pray you will make the commitment to live worthy of the holy priesthood that you bear and strive to execute your sacred role every day. I bless you with the ability and desire to do so. I add my testimony of the power of the priesthood that you hold, of living prophets of Jesus Christ and His role as our Savior and Redeemer. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. In 2010, Andre Sebaco was a young man seeking for truth. 
Though he had never offered a heartfelt prayer before, he decided to try. Shortly afterward, he met the missionaries. They gave him a pass-along card with a picture of the Book of Mormon. Andre felt something and asked if the missionaries would sell him the book. They said he could have the book for free if he would come to church. Andre attended the then recently created Machudi branch in Botswana, Africa, alone. But the branch was a loving, tight-knit group consisting of about 40 members. They welcomed Andre with open arms. He received the missionary lessons and was baptized. It was wonderful. But then what? How would Andre stay active? Who would help him progress along the covenant path? One answer to that question is his priesthood quorum. Every priesthood holder, regardless of his situation, benefits from a strong quorum. My young brothers who hold the Aaronic priesthood, the Lord would have you establish a strong quorum, a place of belonging for each and every young man, a place where the Lord's Spirit is present, a place where all quorum members are welcomed and valued. As the Lord gathers His children, they need a place to belong and grow. Each of you quorum presidency members lead the way as you seek inspiration and develop love and brotherhood among all quorum members. You give special attention to those who are new members, who are less active or have special needs. With priesthood power, you can build a strong quorum, and a strong united quorum makes all the difference in the life of a young man. When the Church announced the new home-centered focus on gospel learning, some thought of members like Andre and asked, What about the young people who come from a family situation where the gospel is not studied and where there is not an environment of learning and living the gospel at home? Will they be left behind? No. No one can be left behind. The Lord loves each young man and each young woman. We, as priesthood holders, are the Lord's hands. We are the Church support to home-centered efforts. When there is limited support at home, priesthood quorums and other leaders and friends watch over and support each individual and family as needed. I have seen it work. I have experienced it. When I was six, my parents divorced, and my father left my mother with five young children. My mother began to work to provide a living for us. She needed a second job for a period of time as well as additional education. There was little time for her to nurture. But grandparents, uncles, aunts, bishops, home teachers stepped up to help my angel mother. And I had a quorum. I am so grateful for my friends, my brothers who loved and supported me. My quorum was a place of belonging. Some may have considered me a long shot and an underdog because of my family situation. Maybe I was. But priesthood quorums changed those odds. My quorum rallied around me and blessed my life immeasurably. There are long shots and underdogs all around us. Perhaps we all are in one way or another. But each of us here has a quorum, a place where we can both receive strength and provide strength. 
The quorum is all for one and one for all. It is a place where we instruct each other, serve others, and build unity and brotherhood as we serve God. It is a place where miracles happen. I would like to tell you about some of the miracles that occurred in Andre's Quorum in Machuti. As I share this example, watch for principles that strengthen every priesthood quorum that applies them. After Andre was baptized, he accompanied the missionaries as they taught four other young men who were also baptized. Now there were five young men. They began strengthening each other and the branch. A sixth young man, Tuso, was baptized. Tuso shared the gospel with three of his friends, and soon there were nine. Disciples of Jesus Christ are often gathered this way, a few at a time as invited by their friends. Anciently, when Andrew found the Savior, he went quickly to his brother Simon and brought him to Jesus. Similarly, soon after Philip became a follower of Christ, he invited his friend Nathaniel to come and see. In Machuti, a tenth young man soon joined the Church. The missionaries found the eleventh, and the twelfth young man was baptized after seeing the gospel's effect on his friends. Members of the Machuti branch were thrilled. These young men were converted unto the Lord and united unto the Church. The Book of Mormon played a significant role in their conversion. Tuso remembers, I began reading the Book of Mormon every time I was free, at home, at school, everywhere. Oratili was drawn to the gospel because of the example of his friends. He explains, They seemed to change in the snap of a finger. I thought it had to do with the little book they started carrying around school. I could see what good men they had become. I wanted to change, too. All twelve young men were gathered and baptized within two years of each other. Each was the only member of the Church in his family. But they were supported by their Church family, including President Rockwella, their branch president, Elder and Sister Taylor, a senior missionary couple, and other branch members. Brother Junior, a quorum leader, invited the young men to his home on Sunday afternoons and mentored them. The young men studied the scriptures together and held regular family home, family home evenings. Brother Junior also taught them to visit members, people being taught by the missionaries, and anyone else who needed a visit. All twelve young men piled into the back of Brother Junior's truck. He dropped them off at homes in companionships of two or three and picked them up later. Even though the young men were just learning about the gospel and didn't feel they knew much, Brother Junior told them to share one or two things they did know with the people they visited. These young priesthood holders taught, prayed, and helped watch over the Church. They fulfilled their priesthood responsibilities and experienced the joy of serving. Andre said, We played together laughed together, cried together, and became a brotherhood. In fact, they called themselves the Band of Brothers. Together, they set a goal that they would all serve missions. 
Since they were the only members in their families, they had many obstacles to overcome. But they helped each other through them. One by one, the young men received mission calls. Those who left first wrote letters home to those still preparing, sharing experiences and encouraging them to serve. Eleven of the young men served missions. These young men shared the gospel with their families, mothers, sisters, brothers, friends, as well as people they taught on their missions, were converted and baptized. Miracles occurred, and countless lives were blessed. I can hear some of you thinking that perhaps such a miracle could happen only in a place like Africa, a fertile field where the gathering of Israel is hastening. However, I testify that the principles applied in the Machuti branch are true anywhere. Wherever you are, your quorum can grow through activation and sharing the gospel. When even one disciple reaches out to a friend, one can become two, two can become four, four can become eight, eight can become twelve, and branches can become wards. The Savior taught where two or three or more, are gathered together in my name. Behold, there I will be in the midst of them. Heavenly Father is preparing the minds and hearts of people all around us. We can follow promptings, extend a hand of fellowship, share truth, invite others to read the Book of Mormon, and love and support them as they come to know our Savior. It's been almost ten years since the Machuti Band of Brothers started their journey together, and they are still a band of brothers. Catleo said, We may be separated by distance, but we are still there for each other. It is my prayer that we will accept the Lord's invitation to be united with Him in our priesthood quorums, so that each quorum might be a place of belonging a place of gathering, a place that grows. Jesus Christ is our Savior, and this is His work. I so testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. As Jesus walked in a street near Capernaum with a great crowd of people around Him, a woman afflicted with a serious condition for twelve years, reached out and touched the hem of his garment. Immediately she was healed. The scriptures record that Jesus, perceiving that power had gone out of him, turned him about in the press and looked to see her that had done this thing. When the woman saw that she was not hid, she fell down before him and told him all the truth. Jesus said unto her, Daughter, be of good comfort. Thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace. Jesus Christ saved the woman. She was healed physically, but when Jesus turned to see her, she declared her faith in him, and he healed her heart. He spoke to her with love, assured her of his approval, and blessed her with his peace. Brethren, as bearers of the Holy Priesthood, we are engaged in the work of salvation. 
In the last year, the Lord has placed the leadership of this work squarely on the shoulders of the elders in Israel. We have an inspiring charge from the Lord. Working with our sisters, we are to minister in a holier way, accelerate the gathering of Israel on both sides of the veil, establish our homes as sanctuaries of faith and gospel learning, and prepare the world for the second coming of Jesus Christ. As in all things, the Savior has shown us the way. We need to look to and serve Jesus Christ as he looked to and served his Father. The Savior said it this way to the prophet Joseph, Look unto me in every thought. Doubt not. Fear not. Behold the wounds which pierce my side and also the prints of the nails in my hands and feet. Be faithful. Keep my commandments, and you shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. In the premortal realm, Jesus promised his Father that he would do his Father's will and be our Savior and Redeemer. When his Father asked, Whom shall I send? Jesus answered, Here am I. Send me. Father, thy will be done and the glory be thine forever. All through his mortal life, Jesus lived that promise in humility, meekness, and love. He taught his Father's doctrine and did his Father's work with the power and authority his Father had given him. Jesus gave his heart to his Father. He said, I love the Father. I do always those things that please him. I came not to do mine own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. In his agony in Gethsemane, he prayed, Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. When the Lord calls the elders in Israel to look unto me in every thought and behold the wounds in his resurrected body, it is a call to turn away from sin and the world and to turn to him and love and obey him. It is a call to teach his doctrine and do his work in his way. It is, therefore, a call to trust him completely, surrender our will, and yield our hearts to him, and through his redeeming power become like him. Brethren, if we look unto Jesus Christ, he will bless us to be his elders in Israel, humble, meek, submissive, full of his love, and we will bring the joy and blessings of his gospel and his church to our families and our brothers and sisters on both sides of the veil. President Russell M. Nelson has called us to look unto Jesus Christ in just this way. There is nothing easy or automatic about becoming such powerful disciples. Our focus must be riveted on the Savior and his gospel. It is mentally rigorous to strive to look unto him in every thought. But when we do, our doubts and fears flee. Rivet is a great word. It means to fasten firmly, to attract and hold completely. We rivet our focus on Jesus Christ and his gospel by living our covenants. When we live our covenants, they influence everything we say and do. We live a covenant life full of simple, everyday acts of faith that focus us on Jesus Christ. Prayer from the heart in His name, feasting on His word, turning to Him to repent of our sins, 
keeping his commandments, partaking of the sacrament, and keeping his Sabbath holy, worshiping in his holy temple as often as we can, and exercising his holy priesthood to serve God's children. These acts of covenant devotion open our hearts and minds to the redeeming power of the Savior and the sanctifying influence of the Holy Ghost. Line upon line, the Savior changes our very nature. We become more deeply converted unto Him, and our covenants come alive in our hearts. The promises we make to our Heavenly Father become rock-solid commitments, our deepest desires. Heavenly Father's promises to us fill us with gratitude and joy. Our covenants cease to be rules we follow and become beloved principles that inspire and guide us and rivet our focus on Jesus Christ. These acts of devotion are available to all, young and old. You young men who hold the holy Aaronic priesthood, everything I've said tonight applies to you. I thank God for you. You make sacred ordinances and covenants available to millions of Latter-day Saints every week. When you prepare, bless, or pass the sacrament, minister, baptize in the temple, invite a friend to an activity, or rescue a member of your quorum, you are doing the work of salvation. You, too, can look unto Jesus Christ and live your covenants every day. I promise you that if you do, you will be trusted servants of the Lord now and in a coming day, mighty elders in Israel. Brethren, I know that all this may sound daunting, but please remember these words of the Savior. I am not alone because the Father is with me. So it is with us. We are not alone. The Lord Jesus Christ and our Heavenly Father love us, and they are with us. Because Jesus looked to his Father and completed the great atoning sacrifice, we can look to Jesus Christ with assurance that he will help us. None of us are perfect. Sometimes we get stuck. We get distracted or discouraged. We stumble. But if we look to Jesus Christ with a repentant heart, he will lift us up, cleanse us from sin, forgive us, and heal our hearts. He is patient and kind. His redeeming love never ends and never fails. He will help us live our covenants and magnify our calling as elders in Israel. And the Father will bless us with all things required to accomplish his purposes, things both in heaven and on the earth, the life and the light, the spirit and the power sent forth by the will of the Father through Jesus Christ, his Son. When divine light and power flow into our lives, three miraculous things happen. First, we can see. Through revelation, we begin to see as Jesus saw the woman beyond the surface into the heart. As we see as Jesus sees, he blesses us to love those we serve with his love. With his help, those we serve will see the Savior and feel his love. 
Second, we have priesthood power. We have the authority and the power to act in the name of Jesus Christ to bless, guide, protect, strengthen, and heal others, and bring miracles to those we love and keep our marriages and families safe. Third, Jesus Christ goes with us. Where we go, he goes. When we teach, he teaches. When we comfort, he comforts. When we bless, he blesses. Brethren, have we not cause to rejoice? We do. We hold the holy priesthood of God. As we look unto Jesus Christ, live our covenants, and rivet our focus on him, we will join with our sisters and minister in a holier way, gather scattered Israel on both sides of the veil, strengthen and seal our families, and prepare the world for the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It will happen. I so testify. I close with this prayer from my heart that all of us, every one, will look unto Jesus Christ in every thought. Doubt not, fear not, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Brethren, thank you for these wonderful messages. The congregation will now join the choir in singing Hope of Israel. After the singing, we will hear from President Henry B. Eyring, second counselor in the First Presidency. It will then be my privilege to address you.
thank you for singing with you. I felt like we were ready to go. <laughs> Many times I have heard priesthood leaders give thanks for the sustaining faith of those they serve. From the emotion in their voices, you know their gratitude is deep and real. My purpose today is to convey the Lord's appreciation for your sustaining His servants in His Church, and it is also to encourage you to exercise and grow in that power to sustain others with your faith. Before you were born, you demonstrated such power. Think back to what we know of the spirit world before we were born. Our Heavenly Father presented a plan for His children. We were there, you and I, all of us. Lucifer, our spirit brother, opposed that plan that would allow us freedom to choose. Jehovah, the beloved Son of Heavenly Father, sustained the plan. Lucifer led a rebellion. Jehovah's sustaining voice prevailed, and He volunteered to be our Savior. The fact that you are in mortality now assures us that you sustained the Father and the Savior. It took faith in Jesus Christ to sustain the plan of happiness, and Jesus Christ placed in it when you knew so little of the challenges that you would face in mortality. Your faith to sustain servants of God has been at the heart of your happiness in this life as well. For example, when you accepted a missionary's challenge to pray, to know that the Book of Mormon was true, the Word of God, you had the faith to sustain a servant of the Lord. When you accepted the invitation to be baptized, you sustained a humble servant of God. When you let someone place hands on your head and say, Receive the Holy Ghost, you sustained him as a holder of the Melchizedek priesthood. Since that day, you have, by serving faithfully, sustained each person who has conferred the priesthood upon you and each who has ordained you to an office in that priesthood. Early in your priesthood experience, each sustaining was a simple event of trusting a servant of God. Now, many of you have moved up to a place where to sustain requires more. You choose whether to sustain all whom the Lord calls in whatever the Lord has called them. That choice happens in conferences all over the world. It has happened in this one. In such meetings, names of men and women, servants of God, are read, and you are invited to raise your hand to sustain. You can withhold your sustaining voice, vote, or you can pledge your sustaining faith. By raising your hand to sustain, you make a promise. You make a promise with God, whose servants these are, that you will sustain them.
Now, these are imperfect human beings, as are you. Keeping your promises will take unshakable faith that the Lord called them. Keeping those promises will also bring eternal happiness. Not keeping them will bring sorrow to you and to those you love, and even losses beyond your power to imagine. You may have been asked, or you will be, whether you sustain your bishop, state president, the general authorities, and the general officers of the Church. It may happen as you are asked to sustain officers and leaders in a conference. Sometimes it will be an interview with a bishop or state president. My counsel to you is you ask those questions of yourself beforehand with careful and prayerful thought. As you do, you might look back on your recent thoughts, words, and deeds. Try to remember and frame the answers you will give when the Lord interviews you, knowing that He someday will. You could prepare by asking yourself questions like the following. One, have I thought or spoken of the human weaknesses in the people I have pledged to sustain? Two, have I looked for evidence that the Lord is leading them? Three, have I conscientiously and loyally followed their leadership? Four, have I spoken about the evidence I can see that they are God's servants? Five, do I pray for them regularly by name and with feelings of love? Those questions will, for most of us, lead to some uneasiness and a need to repent. We are commanded by God not to judge others unrighteously, but in practice we find that hard to avoid. Almost everything we do in working with people leads us to evaluate them. And in almost every aspect of our lives, we compare ourselves with others. We may do so for many reasons, some of them reasonable, but it often leads us to be critical. President George Q. Cannon gave a warning that I pass on to you as my own. I believe he spoke the truth. Open quote. God has chosen his servants. He claims it as his prerogative to condemn them if they need condemnation. He has not given it to us individually to censure and condemn them. No man, however strong he may be in the faith, however high in the priesthood, can speak evil of the Lord's anointed and find fault with God's authority on earth without incurring His displeasure. The Holy Spirit will withdraw Himself from such a man, and He will go into darkness. This being the case, do you not see how important it is that we should be careful?" Close quote. Now, my observation is that the members of the Church across the world are generally loyal to each other and to those who preside over them. 
There are, however, improvements we could and must make. We could rise higher in our power to sustain each other. It will take faith and effort. Here are four suggestions I make for us to act on at this conference. One, we could identify specific actions the speakers recommend and start today to carry them out. As we do, our power to sustain them will increase. Two, we could pray for them as they speak, that the Holy Ghost will carry their words into the hearts of specific people we love. When we learn later that our prayer was answered, our power to sustain those leaders will increase. Three, we could pray that specific speakers will be blessed and magnified as they give their messages. When we see that they were magnified, we will grow in our faith to sustain them, and it will endure. Four, we could listen for messages from the speakers that come as an answer to a, our personal prayers for help. When the answers come, and I promise you they will, we will grow in our faith to sustain all the Lord's servants. In addition to improving in sustaining those we serve in the Church, we will learn that there is another setting in which we can increase in such power. There it can bring even greater blessings to us. It is in the home and family. I speak to the younger priesthood holder who lives in a home with his father. Let me tell you from my own experience what it means for a father to feel your sustaining faith. He may look confident to you, but he faces more challenges than you know. At times, he can't see the way through the problems before him. Your admiration for him will help him some. Your love for him will help even more. But the thing that will help the most is sincere words like these, Dad. I've prayed for you, and I have felt that the Lord is going to help you. Everything will work out. I know it will. Words such as those also have power in the other direction, father to son. When a son has made a serious mistake, perhaps in a spiritual matter, he may feel that he has failed as his father in that moment. You may be surprised after you pray to know what to do when the Holy Ghost puts these words into your mouth, son. I'm with you all the way. The Lord loves you. With His help, you can make it back. I know that you can and that you will. I love you. In the priesthood quorum and in the family, increased faith to sustain each other is the way we build the Zion the Lord wants us to create. With His help, we can and we will. It will take learning to love the Lord with all our heart, might, mind, and strength, and to love each other as we love ourselves. As we grow in that pure love of Christ, our hearts soften. That love will humble us and lead us to repent 
our confidence in the Lord and each other will grow. And then we will move toward becoming one as the Lord promises we can. I testify that Heavenly Father knows and loves you. Jesus is the living Christ. This is his church. We hold his priesthood. He will honor our efforts to grow in our power to exercise it and to sustain each other. I so witness in the sacred name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The restored gospel of Jesus Christ encourages us to think about the future. It explains the purpose of mortal life and the reality of the life to follow. It teaches great ideas about the future to guide our actions today. In contrast, we all know persons who are only concerned with the present spend it today, enjoy it today, and take no thought for the future. Our present and our future will be happier if we are always conscious of the future. As we make current decisions, we should always be asking, where will this lead? Some decisions are choices between doing something or doing nothing. I heard an example of this kind of choice at a state conference in the United States many years ago. The setting was a beautiful college campus. A crowd of young students were seated on the grass. The speaker who described this circumstance said they were watching a handsome tree squirrel with a large bushy tail playing around the base of a beautiful hardwood tree. Sometimes it was on the ground, sometimes up and down and around the trunk. But why would that familiar sight attract a crowd of students? Stretched out prone on the grass nearby was an Irish setter. He was the object of the student's interest, and the squirrel was the object of his. Each time the squirrel was momentarily out of sight circling the tree, the setter would quietly creep forward a few inches and then resume his apparently indifferent posture. This was what held the student's interest. Silent and immobile, their eyes were riveted on the event whose outcome was increasingly obvious. Finally, the setter was close enough to bound at the squirrel and catch it in his mouth. A gasp of horror arose, and the crowd of students surged forward and wrested the little animal away from the dog. But it was too late. The squirrel was dead. Anyone in that crowd could have warned the squirrel at any time by waving arms or crying out, but none did. They just watched while the inevitable outcome got closer and closer. 
No one asks, where will this lead? When the predictable occurred, all rushed to prevent the outcome, but it was too late. Tearful regret was all they could offer. That true story is a parable of sorts. It applies to things we see in our own lives and in lives and circumstances around us. As we see threats creeping up on persons or things we love, we have the choice of speaking or acting or remaining silent. It's well to ask ourselves, where will this lead? Where the consequences are immediate and serious, we cannot afford to do nothing. We must sound appropriate warnings or support appropriate preventive efforts while there is still time. The decisions I've just described involve choices between taking some action or taking no action at all. More common are those choices between one action or another. These include choices between good or evil, but more frequently they are choices between two goods. Here too it's desirable to ask where this will lead. We make many choices between two goods, often involving how we will spend our time. There's nothing bad about playing video games or texting or watching TV or talking on a cell phone. But each of these involves what is called opportunity cost, meaning that if we spend time doing one thing, we lose the opportunity to do another. I'm sure you can see that we need to measure thoughtfully what we are losing by spending the time we spend on one activity, even if it is perfectly good in itself. Some time ago, I gave a talk titled, Good, Better, or Best. In that talk, I said that just because something is good is not a sufficient reason for doing it. The number of good things we can do far exceeds the time available to accomplish them. Some things are better than good, and these are the things that should command priority attention in our lives. We have to forego some good things in order to do others that are better or best. That's what I said in the earlier talk. Take the long view. What's the effect on our future of the decisions we make in the present? Remember the importance of getting an education, studying the gospel, renewing our covenants by partaking of the sacrament, and attending the temple. Where will this lead is also important in choosing how we label or think of ourselves. Most importantly, each of us is a child of God with a potential destiny of eternal life. Every other label, even including occupation, race, physical characteristics, or honors, is temporary or trivial in eternal terms. Don't choose to label yourselves or think of yourselves 
in terms that put a limit on a goal for which you might strive. My brethren and my sisters who may view or read what I say here, I hope you know why your leaders give the teachings and counsel we give. We love you, and our Heavenly Father and His Son Jesus Christ love you. Their plan for us is the great plan of happiness. That plan and their commandments and ordinances and covenants lead us to the greatest happiness and joy in this life and in the life to come. As servants of the Father and the Son, we teach and counsel as they have directed us by the Holy Ghost. We have no desire other than to speak what is true and to encourage you to do what they have outlined as the pathway to eternal life, the greatest of all the gifts of God. Here's another example of the effect on the future of decisions made in the present. This example concerns the choice to make a present sacrifice to achieve an important future goal. At a state conference in Cali, Colombia, a sister told how she and her fiancé desired to be married in the temple. But at that time, the closest temple was in faraway Peru. For a long time, they saved their money for the bus fares. Finally, they boarded the bus to Bogota. But when they arrived there, they learned that all seats on the bus to Lima, Peru, were taken. They could go home without being married or be married out of the temple. Fortunately, there was one other alternative. They could ride on the bus to Lima if they were willing to sit on the floor of the bus for the entire five-day and five-night ride. They chose to do this. She said it was difficult, even though some riders sometimes let them sit in their seats so they could stretch out on the floor. What impressed me in her talk was this sister's statement that she was grateful she and her husband had been able to go to the temple in this way because it changed the way they felt about the gospel and the way they felt about marriage in the temple. The Lord had rewarded them with the growth that comes from sacrifice. She also observed that their five-day trip to the temple accomplished a great deal more in building their spirituality than many visits to the temple that were sacrifice-free. In the years since I heard that testimony, I've wondered how different that young couple's life would have been if they had made another choice, foregoing the sacrifice necessary to be married in the temple. Brethren, we make countless choices in life, some large and some seemingly small. Looking back, we can see what a great difference some of our choices made in our lives. We make better choices, decisions, if we look at the alternatives and ponder where they will lead. As we do, we'll be following President Russell M. Nelson's counsel to begin with the end in mind. 
For us, the end is always on the covenant path through the temple to eternal life, the greatest of all the gifts of God. I testify of Jesus Christ and of the effects of His Atonement and the other truths of His everlasting gospel. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Brethren, we're grateful for your attendance this evening. We appreciate those who have spoken and thank the Aaronic Priesthood Choir for the inspiring music they have provided and acknowledge all others who have assisted in preparing for these proceedings in any way. The concluding speaker for this session will be our beloved prophet, President Russell M. Nelson. Following his remarks, the choir will close this meeting by singing Beautiful Savior. The benediction will then be offered by Elder Brian K. Taylor of the Seventy. My dear brethren, it is inspiring to look out over this vast congregation of the Lord's Battalion of Priesthood Bearers. What a mighty force for good you are. We love you. We pray for you. And we're most grateful for you. Recently, I found myself drawn to the Lord's instruction given through the Prophet Joseph Smith. Say nothing but repentance unto this generation. This declaration is often repeated throughout Scripture. It prompts an obvious question. Does everyone need to repent? The answer is yes. Too many people consider repentance as punishment, something to be avoided except in the most serious circumstances. But this feeling of being penalized is engendered by Satan. He tries to block us from looking to Jesus Christ, who stands with open arms, hoping and willing to heal, forgive, cleanse, strengthen, purify, and sanctify us. The word, <clears throat> the word for repentance in the Greek New Testament is metanoeo. The prefix meta means change. The suffix noeo is related to Greek words that mean mind, knowledge, spirit, and breath. Thus, when Jesus asked you and me to repent, he is inviting us to change our mind, our knowledge, our spirit, even the way we breathe. He's asking us to change the way we love, think, serve, spend our time, treat our wives, teach our children, and even care for our bodies. Nothing is more liberating more ennobling or more crucial to our individual progression than is a regular, daily focus on repentance. 
Repentance is not an event. It's a process. It is the key to happiness and peace of mind. When coupled with faith, repentance opens our access to the power of the Atonement of Jesus Christ. Whether you are diligently moving along the covenant path, have slipped or stepped from the covenant path, or can't even see the path from where you are now, I plead with you to repent. Experience the strengthening power of daily repentance, of doing and being a little better each day. When we choose to repent, we choose to change. We allow the Savior to transform us into the best version of ourselves. We choose to grow spiritually and receive joy, the joy of redemption in Him. When we choose to repent, we choose to become more like Jesus Christ. Brethren, we need to do better and be better because we are in a battle. The battle with sin is real. The adversary is quadrupling his efforts to disrupt testimonies and impede the work of the Lord. He is arming his minions with potent weapons to keep us from partaking of the joy and love of the Lord. Repentance is the key to avoiding misery inflicted by traps of the adversary. The Lord does not expect perfection from us at this point in our eternal progression, but He does expect us to become increasingly pure. Daily repentance is the pathway to purity, and purity brings power. Personal purity can make us powerful tools in the hands of God. Our repentance, our purity, will empower us to help in the gathering of Israel. The Lord taught the Prophet Joseph Smith that the rights of the priesthood are inseparably connected with the powers of heaven and that the powers of heaven cannot be controlled nor handled only upon the principles of righteousness. We know what will give us greater access to the powers of heaven. We also know what will hinder our progress, what we need to stop doing to increase our access to the powers of heaven. Brethren, prayerfully seek to understand what stands in the way of your repentance. Identify what stops you from repenting, and then change. Repent. All of us can do better and be better than ever before. There are specific ways in which we can likely improve. One is in the way we treat our bodies. I stand in awe of the miracle of the human body. It is a magnificent creation, essential to our gradual ascent toward our ultimate divine potential. We cannot progress without it. 
In giving us the gift of a body, God has allowed us to take a vital step toward becoming more like Him. Satan understands this. He chafes at the fact that his premortal apostasy permanently disqualifies him from this privilege, leaving him in a constant state of jealousy and resentment. Thus, many, if not most, of the temptations he puts in our path cause us to abuse our bodies or the bodies of others. Because Satan is miserable without a body, he wants us to be miserable because of ours. Your body is your personal temple, created to house your eternal spirit. Your care of that temple is important. Now I ask you, brethren, are you more interested in dressing and grooming your body to appeal to the world than you are to please God? Your answer to this question sends a direct message to Him about your feelings regarding His transcendent gift to you. In this reverence for our bodies, brethren, I think we can do better and be better. Another way we can also do better and be better is how we honor the women in our lives, beginning with our wives and daughters, our mothers and sisters. Months ago, I received a heartbreaking letter from a dear sister. She wrote, My daughters and I feel we are in a fierce competition for our husbands and sons' undivided attention with 24-7 sports updates, video games, stock market updates, and endless analyzing and watching of games of every conceivable sport. It feels like we're losing our front row seats with our husbands and sons because of their permanent front row seats with sports and games." Close quote. Brethren, your first and foremost duty as a bearer of the priesthood is to love and care for your wife. Become one with her. Be her partner. Make it easy for her to want to be yours. No other interest in life should take priority over building an eternal relationship with her. Nothing on TV, a mobile device or a computer, is more important than her well-being. Take an inventory of how you spend your time and where you devote your energy. That will tell you where your heart is. Pray to have your heart attuned to your wife's heart. Seek to bring her joy. Seek her counsel and listen. Her input will improve your output. (laughs) 
If you have a need to repent because of the way you have treated the women closest to you, begin now. And remember that it is your responsibility to help the women in your life receive the blessings that derive from living the Lord's law of chastity. Never be the reason that a woman is unable to receive her temple blessings. Brethren, we all need to repent. We need to get up off the couch, put down the remote, and wake up from our spiritual slumber. It's time to put on the full armor of God so we can engage in the most important work on earth. It is time to thrust in our sickles and reap with all our might, mind, and strength. The forces of evil have never raged more forcefully than they do today. As servants of the Lord, we cannot be asleep while this battle rages. Your family needs your leadership and love. Your quorum and those in your ward and branch need your strength. And all who meet you need to know what a true disciple of the Lord looks like and acts like. My dear brethren, you were chosen by our Father to come to earth at this crucial time because of your pre-mortal spiritual valor. You are among the finest, most valiant men who have ever come to the earth. Satan knows who you are and who you were pre-mortally, and he understands the work that must be done before the Savior returns. After millennia of practicing his cunning arts, the adversary is experienced and incorrigible. Gratefully, the priesthood we hold is far stronger than are the wiles of the adversary. I plead with you to be the men and young men the Lord needs you to be. Make your focus on daily repentance so integral to your life that you can exercise the priesthood with greater power than ever before. This is the only way you will keep yourself and your family spiritually safe in the challenging days ahead. The Lord needs selfless men who put the welfare of others ahead of their own. He needs men who intentionally work to hear the voice of the Spirit with clarity. He needs men of the covenant who keep their covenants with integrity. He needs men who are determined to keep themselves sexually pure, worthy men who can be called upon at a moment's notice to give blessings with pure hearts, clean minds, and willing hands. The Lord needs men eager to repent, men with a zeal to serve and be part of the Lord's battalion of worthy priesthood bearers. I bless you to become those men. I bless you with the courage to repent daily and learn how to exercise full priesthood power. I bless you to communicate the love of the Savior to your wife and children and to all who know you. I bless you to do better and be better. And I bless you that as you make these efforts, you will experience miracles in your life. We are engaged in the work of Almighty God. Jesus is the Christ. 
We are their servants. I so testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
Our dear Holy Father, at the conclusion of a, a most beautiful day, we approach Thee with gratitude and full hearts for having felt Thy love and heard Thy voice through the voice of Thy servants, through messages and singing and through things spoken and unspoken. Heavenly Father, we express with a united voice as thy sons, the bearers of the holy priesthood, we, we express our love to thee and to thine only begotten Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, for thy courage and his to sacrifice and give his life for each of us, that we might run unto thee to repent of our sins. We thank thee for a living prophet, this most noble man, President Russell M. Nelson, whom we love, and all those who serve with him as prophets, seers, and revelators, that we might sustain them with all of our hearts and move forward and rise up as men of God unto thee and thy Son. Through the power of the Holy Ghost, we pray in the name of the beautiful, our beautiful Savior, even in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Amen.